Welcome to Horsepower to Hyperloops, Kettering University's official podcast, where we serve up a smorgasbord of fascinating people, groundbreaking ideas, and noteworthy advancements in fields as diverse as mobility, healthcare, engineering, and technology. The next era is going to be very, very different. Electrification and then connected, digital, autonomous. It's really going to impact the entire ecosystem of the industry. And we've already seen that happening. It's going to impact not only the OEMs themselves, but dealers, you know, how cars are sold and serviced in the future, suppliers for sure. Hello. I'm Tim Troop Noonan, your host for Horsepower to Hyperloops. And that was Rick Shostek, GMI graduate and recently retired executive VP of Honda, talking about one of the ways the ecosystem of the entire mobility industry is about to expand and change. In a special segment, Rick also talks in this episode about his family's journey of a lifetime, caring for the man Rick calls his own personal hero, his autistic son, Greg, now at 35 years old. Rick Shostek, thank you very much for joining us today. Glad to have you. We've talked a number of times, so thanks for being here. Sure, Tim, absolutely. And by the way, congratulations to you on these uh, podcasts. I think you're over 30 of them now, so I think it's a great service to Kettering and to the industry at large. So thank you very much for what you're doing. Thank you. It's, uh, the pleasure is mine because I get to talk to folks like you. I've never done, I'm a writer, as some people know. And uh, so this is a new medium for me and uh, it's been a lot of fun, but thank you. I, I think they are uh, expanding the reach of Kettering and I hope people, because they're general interest topics and and I hope people tell their friends about Horsepower to Hyperloops because it's not just automotive. We're gonna talk a lot of automotive today, but it's it's a lot of interesting topics. We have a, a guy I just spoke with a while ago who got a uh, satellite on the Artemis One that just went up. So they're all kind of interesting topics. Thanks for mentioning that, Rick. I'm really happy to have you here today for a couple of reasons. One, as I said, we've chatted a number of times. You're a fun guy to talk to, but this is different in two ways. One, you're the first retired individual that we've ever spoken with uh, because we like people who are current and usually have a single issue that they're working on. You are very current because you've been retired for about a minute and a half. When did you retire? I retired. My last day of work was November 1st, so very recently. As executive VP of Honda. And the other thing we're going to talk about, and you've written a book about this, is a, a, we're going to get into a, one of the first times we've gone into something more personal. You have a son who is autistic. His name is, and how old is he? Uh, his name is Greg, and he's 35 years old. Mm -hmm. Okay. And you've written a book about that, which I read, which is a wonderful book. And the name of the book is? Is What Happens Next. What Happens Next. And you wrote it a few years ago. That's right. Uh, when he was 12, right? Yeah. Right. So we're going to talk about both those things. But what I would like to start with is briefly, you were uh, graduated from GMI, and then you've had a a career that went, had a couple spots, but last 35 years at Honda. Give us a thumbnail of that career and, and the things that you've been most focused on in the last three to five years, concluding there. Sure. I guess the headline would be, I'm a trader, right? I went from GM to Honda, but that's the way it goes. My father went to GMI also. He graduated. His name is Don. He graduated back in 1953 and had a 40-year career with General Motors. So 
General Motors put uh, a roof over my head, food on my table as I was a child. And I ended up going to GMI myself. I didn't go there directly. My first year of college, I was at uh, Holy Cross in Worcester, Massachusetts. Or Worcester, oh, I'd forgotten that. Yeah, yeah. You, you were Holy Cross. Right, right. But Tim, I missed my girlfriend. So I switched back to, uh, I grew up in Cleveland. So I switched back to GMI, which was much closer to home. And that girlfriend who I missed being there in New England is uh, now my wife. And we've been married for 44 years. Well, that so, sounds like that was a smarter move than getting a degree somewhere else, getting a degree there and winning the lady. So that's exactly, good. exactly, for sure. So, right, I was shuttling back and forth between Cleveland and Flint in the mid to late 70s. Those are two real garden spots back then, Tim, I, I assure you. <laughs> Flint, but uh, that was my co-op experience at GMI. I worked at a division of GM called Terex. They made bulldozers and dump trucks. They're kind of a poor competitor to Caterpillar at the time. And I always say I didn't leave GM, Tim. Uh, GM left me because they sold Terex to a German company in the early 80s. Soon after I graduated from GMI, they sold it. And I stayed with that company, Terex. It didn't go well for them. They ended up in bankruptcy. And when I left there, I was the youngest salaried employee at the Terex Corporation. And I went from there to a company called Allen Bradley. I think many people have heard of Allen Bradley. It's now part of Rockwell. It wasn't back when I joined it. And uh, during that time, just after GMI, I was going to law school at night in, uh, in Cleveland, at Cleveland State University, and got the opportunity in 1987 to join Honda and join their small legal department back then. And that was literally one month after our son was born, and a couple of years later, our daughter was born. So, how'd your uh, how'd your dad cope with that as a lifelong GM guy? And I've spoken with your dad, by the way. Did an interview with him, and he's a wonderful guy. Now ninety one, right? Absolutely, yeah. He's ninety one and and going strong. Well, how I did he feel about that move? Yeah, Tim, I worried about that a little bit. I was. Uh, told him and then I kind of ducked or, you know, put a hand up in, uh, in defense of what might come from him. And he was so <laughs> gracious about it. And he gave me his blessing. And he said, uh, he said, go for it. He's uh, been a huge part of my life, obviously, all my life, but during my working life, especially, he was a, a great support to me. My one complaint about my dad would be he'd always give me the head fake that he would be considering to buy a Honda product. You know, he, <laughs> he had the GM discount that he, he liked to get cars and I'm thinking about a Honda. And, I, you know, I said, yeah, well, you can think about this one or that one. But he, he never he never did that. He stayed loyal to GM and he still has he, a he, GM car. In his car. He never pulled it, never actually pulled the trigger. Never pulled the trigger. Yeah, he, <laughs> it, was, it was a head fake. But, you know, I was lucky to join Honda when I did. Honda, of course, has been manufacturing autos in the U.S. for 40 years now. Auto manufacturing started back in uh, 1982. I always say if there was a green card issued for companies, Honda would have earned one a long, long time ago because our manufacturing footprint in America is uh, very strong. Honda's the world's largest uh, internal combustion engine manufacturer because it's not just autos, it's motorcycles, power equipment, ATVs, even even airplanes. So it's, I know I know they had a first plant. Was Marysville, Ohio, the first plant? Exactly, Marysville. And now Ohio. there must be others, right? Because I there live, are. I lived, I grew up. 30 miles from uh, Marysville in Springfield, Ohio. And in fact, I was helping uh, a congressman run for re-election. And I remember going at 5 a.m. to the gates of the plant 
to talk to people. He wanted to talk to people coming in and out. It might have been six, but it was early, earlier than for a 21-year-old should be. So where else are there plants in the U.S.? Right. So there's a, a number of plants in Ohio. There are uh, two auto plants, a transmission plant and an engine plant, and also actually three auto plants. There's one where, they, where we were making the uh, NSX uh, super sports car, but also there's plants in Indiana and Alabama in the U.S., also in Canada. And then we make uh, ATVs in South Carolina and power equipment in North Carolina and airplanes in North Carolina. So it's a pretty large wow. footprint. Yeah, pretty large footprint wow. in, in America. It sounds like there's almost, I don't know how you measure it, there's probably a number of metrics, but it's almost more manufacturing in the U.S. than Japan, probably. Does that, is that what that oh, be right? Oh, it's absolutely more manufacturing in the U.S. Than, than Japan. And I'm not sure if the statistic is still current, Tim, but I've heard it fairly recently, so I think it's still valid. And if you think about full-line auto manufacturers that are operating in the United States, and you take the metric of the percentage sold in the U.S. divided by made in the U.S., Honda is second. Of all the of all the auto companies, company that first starts with an F, you can probably figure that one out. Um, <laughs> you switched to Honda. Had you gotten your law degree by that point? I did. I had just gotten my law degree, and why a law degree? I felt like I wanted to get something, you know, an additional degree after uh, after college. And really, my choice. I took uh, the industrial administration curriculum at GMI, so the, the business curriculum. As we all know, it's a great engineering school. But it also had to have a business program. We, it was called back then industrial administration. We called it IA the easy way because, you know, we'd be studying marketing or something like that. And then the engineers would be in books about fluid mechanics and so forth. So they had a harder, a harder tour of it than we did. Anyway, when I graduated, my choices were either an MBA. But I thought, well, I just did that. I'm going to do it again, you know, more business or a law degree. And I had an uncle one of those uncles that's 13 years older than you is more like a big brother than an uncle. And he was a lawyer as I was growing up. So that's what made me decide to get a law degree just to have, a, have another credential for myself. So how did that inform your career path at Honda? I got the degree just to expand my capabilities, but I didn't have the urge to be Johnny Cochran or Perry Mason or anybody like that. I just wanted it for the the thinking method and the uh, uh, and, and I spent a good amount of time in the early years at Honda in the legal area and became general counsel of our manufacturing operations in the 90s. But really soon after that, I branched out into the other business areas. So it helped me get started at Honda. And I think the law degree helps, as I said, in business generally. But I didn't set out to be a lawyer for the rest of my life and didn't end up being when I moved more into general management. So my understanding, of course, You've been there since 1987, 35 years, so there's a whole lot that went on, and I'd love for you to hit the highlights if you want to, but I, I also, it's uh, some of the last five, 10 years, of course, and the whole industry has to do with autonomous vehicles and electric vehicles, and you are a leadership in that. You're the, the leading producer of combustion engineering engines, So, but you're in a partnership with GM. So, so tell me a little bit about, in the last five years, how your work and Honda's work has been involved with those autonomous and or electric trends. We're at a turning point, and it's been a really interesting last uh, several years uh, working in the industry. You know, I say the curtain is slowly closing on the traditional auto industry as we know it. 
what we've all been doing for the last decades. You know, the salespeople call it moving iron. It's talking about a discrete product that uh, a company by themselves can develop and then make or manufacture and sell and service it. You know, that's been the industry that Henry Ford started and that we've all been working in for years and years and years. In that industry, Honda succeeded well, I think, with clever design, with very practical manufacturing methods, uh, really good brand quality, and a strong customer focus. But as you say, the next era is going to be very, very different with electrification and then connected, digital, autonomous. It's really going to impact the entire ecosystem of the industry. And we've already seen that happening. Uh, it's going to impact not only the OEMs themselves, but dealers, you know, how cars are sold and serviced in the future, suppliers for sure. It's been a, a lot of discussion within Honda and I think within every auto company over the last five years or so. I found myself saying, Tim, that I wish I'd paid more attention in chemistry class way back then because I was sitting in presentations and the periodic table is up on a slide and I had to refresh myself on what, the, you know, as we move into electrification with battery power, there's a, a lot more chemistry involved. As a, the largest producer of combustion engines, how does Honda fit into this new trend? Because obviously it does in a big way. So it's a, a great fact and a great uh, boast, if you will, to say we're the largest maker of internal combustion engines in the world, but it also makes it a big task to convert from internal combustion engines to electrification. Honda's uh, global CEO has announced that by 2040, we intend to be all electric means not only in the automobiles, but in the other products that we're uh, producing. So there are huge implications for that. It's a, it's a huge change that Honda has to go through, but really all the, all the OEMs have to go through. The battery electric vehicles, the power unit is much simpler than you know, engine and transmission and all that goes along with it, but it brings in just a whole lot of new business complexity, Tim. Now we're needing to think about more of a circular economy, starting with the minerals that are mined that go into the battery production and into making the vehicle and then recycling and reuse after the fact. So it's very, very much more complex. And I had a friend at Honda who said uh, I was leaving, retiring right at the end of an era uh, as, as a new era begins. And I think he said that with a tinge of, uh, of jealousy, but uh, I'm telling you, it's going to be a huge change coming up here for all the OEMs. One thing that you're talking about is, is the way I think of it is, is the car is no longer a machine, but it's a computer. I mean, those are very vague and hazy words, but just from the layman's standpoint. And so are the car manufacturers now computer companies, or is that all outsourced? Or how does that change on, on the product? change the producer right the connectedness of vehicles and the digitization is here to stay it's and it's been going on for quite a while now for me i think a good customer experience inside the vehicle is table stakes it's just like when you turn on your laptop or you pick up your iphone you want it to work well and i think auto manufacturers have to have that same kind of mindset now in terms of uh, what they're providing to the consumer and, uh, and having a good customer experience inside the vehicle. I think the key, Tim, is partnerships. And you, you mentioned that Honda has a partnership with, uh, with General Motors, but there's many, many partnerships that are being formed inside the industry right now. So 
Honda's partnership is with for two battery electric vehicles that'll be coming out roughly the next year, one a Honda branded product and one an Acura branded product. And we're co-developing those with General Motors and using their Ultium platform for those first two battery electric vehicles that will sell in more mass quantities. But at the same time, we've got our own uh, electric uh, architecture that's been developed and we'll be producing uh, ourselves those additional battery electric vehicles as we go into the second half of this decade. But this electrification is very, very expensive. It's very, very complex, a lot of investment required. So you're seeing, I think, more and more of partnerships of all shapes and sizes, OEM to OEM, you know, the one example being General Motors and Honda, OEMs with suppliers, uh, especially battery suppliers. Honda recently announced uh, that we'll be building a battery plant in Ohio with LG, uh, LG Energy Systems, and uh, working with them as a, as a joint venture. I think in the supplier community in general, the traditional auto suppliers, you're seeing many of them pair up and try to work together. And then to your question about digitization and, and connectedness, OEMs and tech companies are working much more together. So it's not something you can just outsource and say, here, please take care of this. I think it's something that you have to grow the capability inside of your own company and then form partnerships to, again, ultimate goal is to give the customer the best experience that he or she can have when using your product. Are those partnerships, those never happened 15, 20 years and before, did they? I mean, they were uber competitive. And I'm, I know they're still uber competitive, but those, are those partnerships new? I think so. In the past, Tim, there have been few and far between. There have been partnerships in the industry, the Daimler Chrysler thing, you know, 10, 20 years, 20 years ago. Right. So there's been some sharing of platforms and cross branding. It's been but very, very small scale. And I think, yes, the, to answer your question, it, this is new. The level and the complexity and the sophistication of the partnerships that are going on now in the auto industry is way beyond what's ever been done before. And it has an implication to a company's culture because each company has its own culture. As you mentioned, this industry has been super competitive for years and years and years. And of course, every OEM is proud of its company and itself and the and has a culture. But I think the thing that I especially noticed over the last three to five years is that as we enter into these partnerships, it takes a lot to make it work and make it work well. You have to tend to your, your own culture. You have to understand the other company's culture, and you have to try to find a way to land that combined culture in, the, in a partnership. And it's not easy by any stretch of the imagination. Well, that, that is something that's always interested me, and that's is it's tough enough when you have a couple of companies... I don't know, in Michigan and Missouri, but you're working for a Japanese company, which we all know. I mean, they've made movies about it, different corporate cultures than American companies. And now you're talking about partnering up with LG for batteries, which is a Korean company, a South Korean company. And of course, you know, while it's South Korea and Japan are two very different cultures, how much energy has that taken from you and in your company for the last for your experience at Honda to bridge those gaps? It's taken a lot of energy. I underestimated how much energy it would take to bridge those gaps. So I did have a key role as we arranged the partnership with General Motors for the battery electric vehicles. I spent 
time at the Renaissance Center. And then uh, the GM people would come out to Torrance, California, where we have our North American headquarters and meet there. It did take a lot of time to get to know each other better and get to know the culture and find out what there were, there were some candid conversations. You have to be candid and focused, I think, in order to make this work together because because of the culture, I think sometimes they come coming from a little bit different places, trying to get to the same business end, but coming from a little bit different perspective. And it took a lot more work than I than I thought it was. And then similarly, this past year, just before I retired, we announced the, uh, the joint venture with uh, LG Energy Systems. I had a role in that as well. And I think sometimes uh, Americans make the mistake of assuming that all Asian cultures are the same. All Asian cultures are not the same. The Japanese culture is much different from the South Korean culture and culture in China is different again. So again, a lot of energy and I, I underestimated that, but I, I learned a lot in the last couple of years. Is this revolution that we are facing, and I guess that's the right word, of electrification, I don't know. I guess autonomous uh, autonomy is a is a separate revolution. But are are those the biggest changes that you've seen over thirty five years? And it's a two part question. Is that going to define the next thirty five years, or is that just a hybrid step? Maybe that's a bad word. A mid step on the way to another revolution that you see coming ten or fifteen or twenty years down the line. I wish I had a crystal ball. So first of all, I could say for sure that the changes that are happening right now are by far, by far the most significant in my career. And I think it can go back further than 35 years. These changes are are monumental and, and extremely significant. And is it a hybrid, you ask, or to maybe another model out in the future? I think quite possibly it is. You know, I'm a new grandfather. My daughter had Sadie, our granddaughter, about a year and year and three months ago. And I find myself thinking about my granddaughter Sadie and saying, what will the what will it be like for her when she's an adult 20 years from now, 25 years from now? How will she how will transportation be then? How will the all the other technology that we have? It's gonna it's we know it's going to change and, and improve. And I can't imagine um, what it's gonna be like for her 20, 25 years from now. So it could well be that this is an evolution, that what we're entering into now for the next 15 years or so will be one thing, and then coming out on the other side, there'll be something else as well. But certainly, you know, transportation is going to change. Congestion on the on our roads needs to be addressed. I think there's certainly possibilities of using airspace for transportation and for deliveries, and we've, we've seen that been tried. So, yeah, I think there's huge, huge changes that are coming. And I wish I had a crystal ball to tell you what uh, where it's, where it's going to okay. land 25 years from now, but I, I don't have that. You bring up your granddaughter, which, by the way, congratulations. That's a great segue into this other aspect that I want to cover, because you have been such a voice and such a champion of this issue of autism because you have an autistic son. Rather than give you a specific question, just tell me a little bit about that journey. He was born 35 years ago, and that started uh, every family, or I assume 99.9%, have a great commitment to that child. But you have gone even beyond that with being active in a lot of uh, help with that, a lot of organizations. You've written a book. So tell us a little bit about that journey and about Greg. 
and how you manage that. We all have a hard time managing personal life and work life, but that that's a whole nother level of, of commitment. So tell us about the whole journey. It's been quite a journey. As you say, Greg is now 35 years old. So his his age and my Honda career always were the same numbers. That so was easy to remember. But yes, Greg is on the autism spectrum. For those who don't know, it is a spectrum from the uh, kind of the most affected on one end to the more, uh, let's say, higher functioning on the other end. At the, the worst affected is no communication available and maybe some self-injury and uh, other issues. And then on the higher end, people who can live fairly independently, people who can go to college, but probably the thing that the characteristic that's most noticeable among those people at the upper end of the autism spectrum is their socialization skills are not strong and they have a little bit of trouble reading, reading social cues and so forth. Anyway, Greg is smack dab in the middle. So Greg is, he can communicate not really well, but pretty well. He can answer yes or no questions. He can make known what he wants and so forth. He's pretty independent as far as hygiene and getting ready in the morning, getting dressed and so forth, but he's not fully independent. He's not able to cook a meal for himself. But the worst scenario for me is if there was a, you know, an emergency situation, Greg would not be safe in an emergency situation. So the point is he needs, as an adult, he needs uh, he needs care. And he's got some caregivers that uh, that do help him out with that. Greg's a blessing. When we first got the diagnosis, Greg was two or three years old. And of course, it was devastating to hear those words for my wife and I. And I remember we sat on a on a stoop and, and had a short cry, but then we just picked it up and said, okay, well, let's get on with things. And what do we need to do to help this guy? And he's been remarkable in what he's been able to accomplish. I say he's done much more with, with what he's been given than I've ever done. So he's kind of my hero. And so I, I did write a book about him. I wrote it 11 or 12 years ago, just as he was entering into adulthood. And the last thing I want anyone to do is feel sorry for Greg or feel sorry for our family. I wrote it more to celebrate him and then to share our experience with others that the title was What Happens Next. So the school system, the education system in the U.S. is pretty is pretty good, I think, for the most part. But as you leave that, you're ending into an adult services realm where it's more uncertain of how adults can survive. And I think when we talk about autism, I think a lot of times the focus is on the children. But children, these these folks do grow up. We have to, as a society, I think, take care of them in adulthood as well. Uh, it's quite an uplifting book, and I appreciate your having sent it to me. And I love the attitude. And of course, life is, in my mind, ninety five percent attitude of that he's a blessing and an inspiration. You are engaged in a number of, aren't you, on a couple of boards and and I mean what. What I mean, I don't know even how large the autistic population or the population that needs that is not independent is, but there's there's a lot of awareness that needs to be raised, if I'm not mistaken. Absolutely. The incidence rate keeps increasing. It's down to now one in 58 children born today are somewhere on the autism spectrum. Really? Uh, that many? That's one huge. in 58. Mm -hmm. Now, some of them are just, as you say, very mild, less socially capable as they get older, but a lot of those are need a great deal of assistance, right? Yes, absolutely. You know, the one thing that having Greg has taught my wife and I, we can pretty much uh, pick somebody out in the community. We see them, even if they're only mildly affected uh, on, on the autism spectrum. And certainly our uh, 
Uh, we've got a soft spot in our hearts for each each and every one of them. Yeah, we've tried to stay active in the autism community. I served on the Ohio Governor's Autism Task Force back in the late 90s. I've been on active in uh, nonprofits in Alabama, Indiana, and here in my hometown of Ohio for years and years and years. And I currently serve as the chair of the board of Bridgeway, uh, which is both a preschool through grade 12 school for children with autism and other developmental disabilities here in Columbus, Ohio, as well as a therapy center. Because a lot of these young people need speech therapy, occupational therapy, uh, music therapy, and so forth to help them uh, to help them progress. So, yeah, it's my new uh, moniker is a disability advocate, I think. And it's but, you know, Greg taught me a lot and he's really made me a better person. I think even being able to have Greg in my life helped me at work as well. Greg's a very uh, literal sort of person and learning to communicate with him. I think it helped me to communicate with all different kinds of people at work. He's just been a, a great blessing for, for me and our whole family. For those of us who don't have a lot of experience with the autistic community, a lot of times as with many disabilities, but particularly that one, because how does someone interact with Greg? If I met Greg, if anybody met, meets Greg, you're having lunch, and I know he goes out to dinner with you from time to time and so on. What advice do you give those people about how to interact with Greg? Our philosophy, Tim, from the beginning has been not to shelter Greg from society or from the community, but to put him out in that community. And on the one hand, you know, here he is, you know, deal with him. I mean, he's just he's just different. I'll give you a good example. We go to the same grocery store. Greg likes to uh, shop for groceries on the weekend. He comes with us. And there's a, a woman named Sarah who's behind the cheese counter at the local grocery store. And she and Greg have become just great, great buddies. With Greg, and again, not all people with autism are the same. They're, they have common characteristics, but each one of them is a unique individual. But with Greg, he kind of repeats the same conversation. You'll have the same conversation with him today as you'll have with him a week from now. So he'll say, hi, Sarah, how are you? And Sarah's the woman behind the counter. And she'll bring him out a sample of cheese and they'll talk a little bit. It's not going to be a deep conversation, but I think just showing interest, smiling, and not being uh, scared or upset if he's crossing a social boundary, like getting closer to you than quote unquote uh, normal people or neurotypical people would get to you. Just understanding that, welcoming him, I think that's the that would be my suggestion for you know how to deal with someone. I love that term neurotypical because that undemonizes disabilities. It just puts people in different categories. Exactly. And, uh, I've heard people talk about somebody has a different experience of the world or has a different view or has a different perspective. And I think it's helpful to look at it that way because it would be wonderful if Greg could articulate the perspective he has. But if you respect that perspective and respect that person, I think it's wonderful. And I appreciate all that you've done in that community because, I mean, it's just, it's a lot to do that. And, and yet I love hearing you talk about it as a gift and a blessing and an inspiration. I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to chat with you, Rick, and also from your perspective, what's the plan for retirement going forward? Are you going to serve on boards and keep your hand in the automotive industry, or are you going to go fishing? What's, what's the agenda? I have time to think about those things. 
and the other thing I'm realizing, Tim, is I was in a bubble there working at Honda for all those years with really good IT support. So now, you know, I've got all these new devices and new apps, and it's no small task to get things set up to work uh, smoothly. <laughs> so the initial work is, uh, you know, I'm just a, another boomer out here trying to figure out how to make the technology work uh, myself. But uh, <laughs> I will for sure stay involved in the uh, in the disability community, and uh, I will also be interested to see how things in the industry are developing and there's something that I can uh, contribute to, I'll be happy to do that. For the rest of us, do we just hang on and when should I get an an electric vehicle? Is it too soon? Should I wait for more infrastructure or should I go out and get one right now? Well, that's up to you, Tim, but infrastructure is certainly an issue. There's a lot of money in the infrastructure bill that was passed uh, last year. And that's going to start to build out more charging stations. So it'll be a, it'll be a combination of public and private investment that helps to build out the infrastructure here. On the other hand, I'm not sure how many people are driving, you know, 200 plus miles every day. So the range of existing electric vehicles, I think, is decent and will likely get better. And I think the performance of the vehicles is going to be something that people are are pleased with. So. But on the other hand, the internal combustion engine is not going away anytime soon. You're talking to a guy who's got two uh, Acura SUVs in his garage, both powered by internal combustion engines, and I'm, I'm just fine for a while. So I think just think about it and take your time. And again, unless you're doing, going to be doing a lot of driving, uh, I'm not sure the charging issue is so treacherous for you. Well, Rick Shostak, thank you. Recently, uh, Executive VP of Honda, now individual boomer trying to figure out the technology on his own. <laughs> thank you for joining us today. Thanks for your perspectives on, on this revolution in the automotive industry. Thanks for your thoughts on Greg. Good luck to Greg. Good luck to your family and good luck in, in retirement. Thanks for joining us. Tim, thanks so much. It's been a real pleasure. Join us again to hear Kettering University's podcast, Horsepower to Hyperloops, available from wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening.